So just because you get a diagnosis of fibroids doesn't mean that needs to be taken care of. Uh, the vast majority can be totally ignored. Um, having said that, a small proportion of them cause massive problems. The most common being very heavy menses. Uh, that is the most common presenting symptom for fibroids. Um, and not only can they be heavy, sometimes they can be prolonged. Uh, and in fact, sometimes it can be uh, irregular as well. Uterine fibroids are incredibly common. Somewhere between 20 and 70% of people with uteruses will develop fibroids during their lifetimes. And while they're often benign, they can still cause some troublesome symptoms. To learn more about uterine fibroids, common symptoms, and treatment options, I spoke with Dr. Bala Bhagbat. Dr. Bhagbat is the director of the UW-OBGYN Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I'm Jackie Askins, and this is the Women's HealthCast. I'm very excited to be joined today by our Director of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, Dr. Bala Bhagavath, to tell me a little bit about fibroids. Um, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Uh, I wanted to invite you just in part because I know that you're a very skilled um, surgeon, and I think work on... Uh, work with patients who have uterine fibroids sometimes. And I also know you were recently part of a multi-center trial, um, looking at a, comparing a couple different treatment options, um, a couple different surgical options for uterine fibroid treatment. So I'm very excited to learn a little bit from your expertise today. And I think we can start by um, just explaining like what uh, uterine fibroids are. Um. Uterine fibroids are the most common uh, tumors that a woman can develop in a lifetime. They are benign, that's the most important thing. They are rarely uh, cancers. So for the vast majority of patients, they are very benign tumors. And um, they are basically smooth muscle cells uh, of the uterine muscle that have just overgrown. Uh, in certain areas like knots. And uh, uh, they're also characterized by a high amount of intercellular connective tissue material uh, in them. So it's a combination of the smooth muscle cells and the intervening uh, connective tissue material that's normally present, but just in abundant quantities. Mm-hmm. What do we know about how common fibroids are, how many people are affected by them? They are incredibly common. In fact, uh, fibroids are present in 70% of autopsy specimens. So seven out of 10 women die with a fibroid in the uterus. So it is that common. Having said that, not all fibroids cause problems. So just because if you have a mole on your skin, that's nothing to be afraid of. Everybody has moles on their skin, but certain moles can become problematic. Uh, of course, with moles, it's cancer. But with fibroids, it's just that they cause symptoms that can lead to uh, some quality of life problems that can then uh, necessitate some sort of intervention to get the woman to have a better quality of life. We've talked about what fibroids are, how common they are. Um, Do we know anything about what causes them or if some people are more likely to get them than others? Very good question. Um, 
If I knew what causes fibroids to develop, I would be a Nobel Prize winner. Unfortunately, there's so much intense um, research going on since it's the most common condition that affects women. Unfortunately, we don't know. That's the simplest answer. In terms of are some women more prone? Absolutely. From a racial standpoint, women from Africa are a higher uh, chance of developing larger, many more fibroids, plus just pure chance of having fibroids is much more uh, in them at a younger age. So anything you name it, risk-wise, developing them younger, developing many more fibroids, developing very large fibroids. And uh, purely if you took 100 African women and if you took 100 other race, regardless, all other race, uh, human races, they are more likely to have fibroids. So it's, we don't know why. The second thing is, regardless of race, uh, fibroids affect all human beings, uh, regardless of race. So it is universal. But what is interesting is it tends to run in families. So if you have your mom or your sister with fibroids, the chances are you will develop as well. So it tends to run in families within any given race. What, I guess, what are some of the symptoms or signs? Like how, you said they're, they're very common, 70% of people can have them. How do we know if it's, um, how do we know if we have a fibroid or if it's a, a problematic one or one that really is affecting our quality of life? That's a very good question. The vast majority of fibroids are not problematic, obviously, as you can imagine. 70% of women die with a fibroid in the uterus. So the vast majority are not problematic. So just because you get a diagnosis of fibroids doesn't mean that needs to be taken care of. Uh, the vast majority can be totally ignored. Um, having said that, a small proportion of them cause massive problems. The most common being very heavy menses. Uh, that is the most common presenting symptom for fibroids. Um, and not only can they be heavy, sometimes they can be prolonged. Uh, and in fact, sometimes it can be uh, irregular as well, especially with fibroids that are distorting the cavity uh, or entirely within the fibroids. They may bleed on and off even outside of a menstrual cycle, resulting in this unpredictable uh, bleeding that of course makes life miserable and uh, cannot plan events in life when you're constantly bleeding without any uh, way to predict that. So next to very heavy or, uh, or irregular menses, the uh, other common presenting symptom is just uh, the size of the fibroid causing either a disfigurement in the sense that their tummy is getting bigger, they look like they are pregnant. Uh, sometimes they can look like they are full-term pregnant, depending upon the size of the fibroid, um, to uh, very often when there are big fibroids like that, there is pressure symptoms. The woman can feel the fibroid. Can you imagine being, uh, having the sensation of being pregnant all the time rather than just when you're pregnant? That is not a fun feeling to have. Carry that fibroid around for a long period of time. Um, that, that results in that heaviness, sometimes pain itself, um, uh, resulting from that fibroid in the uterus. Also, talking about pain, it can be, uh, the periods can be painful with fibroids. So that 
In addition to being heavy and irregular, uh, the piers can turn out to be painful as well uh, in the presence of fibroids. The next common problem is the, uh, uh, the size of the fibroid or the fibroid mass pressing upon the bladder, which is in front of the uterus normally. And it is quite common for pregnant women to have to go to the bathroom a little bit more often than they normally uh, do uh, because that heavy uterus is pressing upon the bladder, preventing the bladder from uh, expanding to its full capacity, which means that you have to uh, go to the bathroom more often, but actually avoid less amount of urine because not much can be held in that bladder. The same thing happens with the fibroid uterus as well. In addition to that, uh, patients occasionally, if the fibroid presses back on the, um, we call this incarcerated fibroids, when it is stuck between the pubic bone in the front and the sacral bone in the back, uh, the fibroid grows in such a way it sort of gets, uh, gets trapped. Uh, that's why it's like in a prison inside the bowl of the pelvis and it's called an incarcerated fibroid. That can actually um, cause uh, the urine to completely stop coming out. So you have urinary retention and women uh, get admitted to the emergency department because they have this incredibly enlarged uh, bladder. They really want to go to the bathroom, but they can't um, because it's uh, the fibroid is pressing upon the urethra and preventing the urine from coming out of the bladder. So these are all some of the uh, present symptoms of the uterine fibroid. And it sounds like there's a range in severity too from um, maybe noticing some extra heavy bleeding during a period or in um, or irregular bleeding all the way to something that would make someone need to go to the emergency room. <laughs> Absolutely. And heavy range. bleeding itself can uh, get the woman into the emergency department. They can bleed down to the point of uh, needing blood transfusion. That is not that uncommon. Uh, women end up in the ED with severe anemia and a very, very prolonged and heavy bleeding that requires some emergency measures to stop the bleeding and also sometimes even necessitating blood transfusion. I don't know if it's very well defined for us as people with uteruses that like what constitutes heavy bleeding and what is a concerning amount of bleeding. Um, do you Do you have any, I guess not recommendations, but like, what are the hallmarks of, of uh, menstrual bleeding that's too heavy that suggests like, oh, maybe something is wrong and you might need to um, seek some attention or get some help? What, are we, what should we be looking for or be concerned about if we're experiencing it? This is an excellent question, actually, uh, because uh, even when we do research, that is the biggest problem is, is this significant? And by definition, heavy menstrual bleeding is 80 milliliters per menstrual cycle or more. So it's actually defined in quantity. Um, if you use a maxi, what they call as a maxi pad or an extra large uh, super tampon uh, at night and you're soaking through that at night uh, and you have to sometimes wear a super tampon and on top of the max, uh, that a maxi pad, that is too heavy. You shouldn't be bleeding like that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it is 80 milliliters throughout the menstrual cycle. If it is five days or seven days, whatever be the normal length of time um, that a person has. 
But in that time period, some people can bleed all five days incredibly heavily. And then there are others who would bleed heavily just one day, and then the other days will be much lighter. So if you're bleeding one day really heavy and you have to use a super tampon, and uh, that is okay. But on the other hand, if you're bleeding not that heavily, but pretty much using a super tampon every time you change, not just at night and you're um, bleeding like that three or four days in your seven day menstrual cycle, that can be way more than, yeah, uh, than acceptable. So if, you, if you're in doubt, you can always get and get to your um, family practice doctor or OBGYN and discuss with them how heavily you're bleeding, have a chart. It's always helpful to have what we call as a menstrual chart. You can find them online, pictorial charts um, that you can then use to document more clearly. And that's always very helpful for the doctor to look at and say, I think that is okay or no, that is that sounds abnormal. So let's look into it and figure out why you're bleeding heavily. So let's say someone has noticed, um, you know, heavier bleeding than they would have expected, or maybe a new discomfort, um, and, you know, does seek out, um, like, an appointment with their OBGYN provider, their family practice provider, or um, another specialist. How, in that interaction, how are fibroids diagnosed? So they've, we've gone in, we've presented with this concern. What happens to kind of verify whether someone has uterine fibroids or not? Um, it always starts with the history, you know, uh, the doctor is going to delve deeper into how many days are you bleeding heavily, is, are there any bleeding between menses, all that history taking helps the doctor determine or come to a suspicion at least what is going on, uh, followed by a clinical examination, of course, uh, when we examine uh, not just a speculum examination, but especially examining with two hands, uh, that helps determine how big the uterus is. The uterus, when it's normal size, should really ordinarily be within the pelvic uh, bowl is itself. But uh, as it starts getting bigger, we we are taught as uh, medical students and further in residency to measure uterine size in, in, in gestational heights, what we call as this feels like an eight-week pregnant uterus. This feels like a 12-week pregnant uterus. This feels like a 24-week pregnant uterus. So we measure in, the, in those terms. So any uterus that is beyond the normal, even a six-week or eight-week pregnant uterus is enlarged by definition. And that will lead to suspicion. There are any number of reasons for that, um, but fibroids being the most common, uh, if you found an enlarged uterus and the person's bleeding, you typically would organize a ultrasound examination of the pelvis, uh, which would include examining with a probe on the abdomen first and then inserting a probe in the vagina and taking a much closer look at the uterus and the ovaries. And that will give us a sense for are there any fibroids, are there any other abnormalities in the uterine cavity, um, uh, so, uh, uh, as well as uh, sometimes there is endometriosis that can result in heavy bleeding as well. All this information can be gathered with the ultrasound examination. And that would typically be the uh, starting point, depending upon the size and number of fibroids. And if we need to decide on the type of treatment or options that one can offer to the patients, we may order an MRI to further delineate because MRI is a lot more um, 
precise in defining the number and location of fibroids than uh, the ultrasound is, especially as the number and size of the fibroids start going up, then uh, MRI is more useful than ultrasound. So what happens next after this ultrasound or possible um, additional MRI scan? We've found, um, we'll find that someone has uterine fibroids. Um, I guess, I'm, first I'm curious if all fibroids require treatment. Um, do you, if you find out that you have them, do you have to do something about them next? Yeah, very good question. When I see patients with fibroids and I talk about options, I give them I, I give them a very standard list of all the options that are available, uh, starting with do nothing. It's a perfectly reasonable option if we don't um, suspect cancer. And the other extreme of that choice, because do nothing is an extreme choice, except for the few patients who have incidentally been diagnosed with fibroids by their doctor when they did a pap smear and they examined and said, oh, your uterus is big, and then they get worried and they... Uh, seek some um, confirmation as well as counseling, the vast majority come because there is some symptom associated with that and they want to try and address those symptoms. So do nothing is not usually a big, um, a good option for many, but for those who are asymptomatic or bothered less by it, but more concerned because they have now been told they have a fibroid, do nothing is a perfectly reasonable option. Seven out of 10 women die with a fibroid, so it is a perfectly reasonable option. On the other hand, the extreme um, end of the uh, other end of the spectrum is doing a hysterectomy, removing the uterus itself, because the only thing that will prevent a fibroid from coming back is removing the uterus, because the uterus is the uh, fertile ground for fibroids to grow. Uh, so the only way to prevent weeds from developing in your garden is to completely cement over your garden which is the equivalent of removing your uterus, right? So I, I tell that to my patients, you know, that's the other extreme and not everybody needs to go to that extreme uh, to take care of the fibroids. So what kind of options are available for treatment between those two extremes of like do nothing at all, just sort of watch and wait, and then hysterectomy? I guess, I mean, are there non-surgical ways to treat fibroids? So the non-surgical options, can be further divided into medical options and radiological options. So medical options, for years we have had this injection called Lupron that we can administer um, as, a, uh, as a subcutaneous in uh, intramuscular injection, I apologize. And that is a depot injection. So you can give the shot once a month, you can take it once in three months, up to once in three months. And uh, that puts you into artificial menopause. Why uh, is that uh, helpful? We know that when women attain menopause, fibroids stop growing and they start shrinking. And if it's extremely rare to find a fibroid in a woman who has not yet started having a menses. The youngest I have treated uh, a person with fibroid is 15 years of age, which is a little bit shocking even for me as a doctor, that that's pretty young. The vast majority of patients present with fibroids in their late 30s to the early 40s. That's the typical, you know, the max, uh, the the uh, the concentration of fibroids occurs in that age, which means uh, the older you get in your reproductive years, 
the higher the chance you have fibroids that can be causing problems. Um, but having said that, I have seen plenty of patients in the early 20s and uh, late 20s as well. Attaining menopause or artificially attaining menopause will help shrink the fibroid. Fibroids grow because estrogen, the hormone that is predominantly produced by the ovaries in the reproductive age years, uh, acts upon the fibroids and help them grow. We know that if you take estrogen away, they tend to shrink. So by putting a woman on artificial menopause, that helps in shrinking the fibroid. Uh, unfortunately, it comes with the side effect of a menopause. So heart flashes, night sweats, your bone strength starts going down because after menopause, women start losing their bone strength. And that's why older women can easily fracture their hips or their backbones or their wrist bones. So you don't want that happening in a younger woman either. So therefore, this treatment has been uh, used almost exclusively in those patients who get very, very heavy periods. They are anemic and we decide that we need to do something about it like operation and we can't do that until we get their blood level up. So it's almost like a stopgap treatment temporarily to try and um, get their blood levels up. But recently, uh, oral form of this uh, same concept, you know, putting you into um, menopause, artificial menopause has been approved by the FDA. Um, it's approved only for up to two years. You take this medication once a day and it puts you into artificial menopause. What they have tried to do is to prevent those symptoms of um, uh, symptoms of hot flashes and night sweats, as well as to prevent the bone from bone strength from growing down. They have added other hormones, a natural estrogen, but in low uh, strength, and then a little progesterone. Because if you give estrogen only, that can cause cancer growth in the lining of the uterus. So avoid that a little bit of progesterone. So there's a combination of three medications in there. It's in a single tablet and you can take that and it's approved for use up to two years. And it seems to uh, work well for menses, heavy menses in about three or four women, roughly. That's one way to do that. But uh, the way I look at it is it's a stopgap treatment for patients who are in their late 40s, who expect to get their uh, menopause soon anyway, and who don't want any other intervention than just taking a tablet a day, that would be a perfect, um, perfect management strategy. What kinds of options are available for people who aren't close to menopause, aren't really interested in going into early menopause with the, um, with the, with the medications that you described? Can they do anything to address symptoms like heavy bleeding? Like even if it's not going to treat the fibroids, is there anything they can do to just help with um, one of the symptoms of heavy bleeding? Uh, of course, patients can try oral contraceptive pills to try and decrease the heaviness of the menses. We can take other hormonal kind of, uh, uh, medications. We can also use what we call as antifibrinolytic agents, which help decrease uh, heavy menstrual uh, bleeding, even women without fibroids. So there are plenty of girls and women who have heavy menses and don't have fibroids, and uh, this medication can be helpful to uh, treat that. And that, uh, again, can be tried, and if it works, it, it is great. So there are it's not just these artificial menopause treatments that are there, but there are other medical treatments as well that one could employ. And until you try, you would not know. 
Then if those didn't work, and typically I see patients when they've already tried those things with their own um, primary care doctor or their OBGYNs before they land on Medostra, the second non-surgical option, broad option would be to go to interventional radiology department and they can do two things. Um, one is to um, block the arterial supply to the fibroids, it's called uterine fibroid embolization. And to do that, um, they access uh, your uterine artery through a nick in the groin or on your wrist. So the way I explain that is um, when you have a heart attack, you need to unblock the blockage in your uh, coronary arteries. So they go through the wrist or the, or the groin, they go in and they can actually put in this wire with the balloon in it and unblock that blockage. Instead, here it's the opposite. We give a uterus attack. They go in and block the blood supply to the fibroids and thereby it blocks the blood supply and any growth needs blood supply. And so if you block the blood supply, then it stops that fibroid from growing. Um, interestingly, even though it is a simple procedure, uh, patients need to be admitted overnight because um, if you have a heart attack, if you have severe pain, because that muscle is dying. Similarly here, your fibroid is a muscle, as I said, collection of muscle cells. And therefore, when you cut off the blood supply, that tends to die off and that causes pain. So in order to manage the pain adequately, and it's typically overnight, they get admitted to the hospital for pain relief and then the next day they go. And that has been shown to effectively decrease blood loss in five out of six women. Either it'll completely stop the periods after that procedure, in a small proportion of women or in the vast majority of women, it will um, it will decrease the blood loss to an extent that it's acceptable. And you say, okay, I can live with that period now. So that is an option um, that unfortunately is available only to women who have completed their childbearing because after that procedure, um, there have been reports of women uh, having miscarriages or preterm deliveries or inability to get pregnant. And clearly, if you have not completed your family and you still hope to grow your family, that is not the best option at this point in time. The other option is not available everywhere. That's also available through the interventional radiology department. It's called high intensity focus ultrasound or HIFU, H-I-F-U. That uh, option is available in select centers around the country. The reason being, it's very expensive equipment and it takes a long time. It takes about two to three hours to lie in the MRI machine for the treatment to work. Uh, it has caveats. Uh, it, it, you can only treat three fibroids total and uh, the fibroids cannot exceed more than 10 centimeter in volume. So there are a lot of um, uh, uh, stringent, uh, uh, how can I say, uh, conditions before that treatment can be applied. And so that is a real problem, plus the fact that it's ext extremely expensive and many uh, institutions do not even have that machine in, 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 in available for the patient. So therefore, it's sort of a limited use in this area in Madison, Wisconsin. We do not have that. Uh, high-intensity focus ultrasound. So I let the patients know because if they're really interested, then they can find out and go to big centers that may have them uh, if they can afford to do go out of network for that.
Um, then comes the surgical management. You walked through all these options for non-surgical management, but if that's not a good option for somebody, um, if non-surgical treatments aren't a good fit, what kinds of surgical treatment options are available for people? So obviously the other end of the spectrum is uh, hysterectomy or removal of the uterus, as I explained earlier. But what about not removing the uterus, um, removing only the fibroids? That has been performed for uh, more than a century now. And that, that is a most common, uh, the most common conservative management of fibroids at this point in time. Quite a few fibroids can be dealt with with mini laparotomy, which is tiny six to eight centimeter incision maximum. They are really small. Uh, it can be bikini line like a C-section scar, or sometimes it has to be midline because of the way the fibroid lies. Uh, but nevertheless, this, these patients go home the same day. The fibroids can be as many as possible can be removed. Uh, what about non-myomectomy options? Uh, is there any minimally invasive myomectomy options? Myomectomy being removal of the fibroids. We can use the robot. I tend to use the robot uh, quite a bit uh, in removing big fibroids that I cannot remove through the mini laparotomy incision. And you may say, wow, hang on a minute. A robot uses keyhole surgery. So you say you're going to use the robot for the big cases, but for small cases, you would use uh, open surgery. True, if the uterus is confined just above your pubic hairline, and I can access these fibroids through that, and I take it out through that, then why do you need more incisions? With the robot, you get four incisions. There are these tiny incisions, yes, but still there's one bigger incision, relatively bigger incision that I hide in the belly button to remove the fibroids. The largest fibroid I've taken out is 2.9 kilograms. That is like eight pounds, I think. Um, so it, it's a huge fibroid and I've taken that out with the, with the robot. So you can do that. It unfortunately requires patience, takes a longer period of time. So why do I do that? Because the patient gets to go home the same day. So the 2.9 kilogram fibroid, the patient still went on the same day, which is very helpful for recovery because two weeks later they are driving and going about their normal activity. Uh, so to, to recap, you know, you can divide the treatment broadly into surgical treatments and non-surgical treatments. Non-surgical treatments can be uh, do nothing is one end of the spectrum to taking tablets or injections to um, uh, going to interventional radiology and having the uterine fibroid embolization procedure or the high-intensity focus ultrasound procedure. And then moving to the surgical treatment, you can just do laparoscopy, stick this needle in and use radiofrequency energy to heat up the fibroids to try and decrease them. The end result is similar to the uterine fibroid embolization. Roughly four out of five women uh, find that their bleeding is either considerably decreased or completely stopped. And um, the only difference is that it looks like it may be perfectly safe for women to get pregnant after the radiofrequency ablation compared to the uterine fibroid embolization. However, I have to, uh, I have to caution that from an FDA perspective, it's still not uh, approved to be used in women who state that they want to get pregnant after that procedure. And then uh, you have the myomectomy, and the myomectomy 
uh, can be done either open old-fashioned big cart or a small mini laparotomy to robot assisted or laparoscopic and then lastly of course a hysterectomy where the uterus is removed and again uh, if you have the skill then you can remove it with a robot or laparoscope even a huge uterus and the patient can go home the same day as opposed to a big cut and staying in the hospital for the hysterectomy. But again, when you have such big uteri, it requires a special skill set, uh, a person to be able to uh, achieve that uh, uh, in a safe and effective manner. So you talked a lot about surgical management for fibroids, and I'm kind of curious who can do these kinds of surgeries? Who does someone go to um, to pursue surgical options for fibroid treatments? Oh, uh, almost entirely all of it is done by um, GYN surgeons. And among GYN surgeons, again, there is there are different um, uh, skill levels. There are reproductive surgeons like myself who do them. There are minimally invasive surgeons who do them. Um, if you want to do them uh, uh, minimally invasively, reproductive surgeon or a minimally invasive surgeon would be able to do them. Uh, but even general GYN surgeons, especially the new world, uh, uh, more recently trained ones, are being trained to do these minimally invasively. And depending upon their, um, their training, they could do them as well. So ultimately, it's not a question of uh, somebody specially licensed to do them, because this is different. It's not like cancer surgery where you have to have training in cancer surgery to do them. Uh, this, this requires just further training and the type of training you received in your formative years that help you, or you take the tra training yourself by attending special courses or getting somebody to come and proctor you to get comfortable in doing these more challenging cases. But almost exclusively, they are uh, they are performed by uh, gynecologists. You talked a little bit while you were laying out some of the surgical options. I heard you mention a couple times, like some surgeries approved for um, people who want to be pregnant in the future, um, whether surgery is a good idea or a recommended idea for someone for whom future fertility is a concern. Um, so I guess what what are the recommended treatment options if someone is younger and still interested in um, growing or adding to their family? Um, what is the usual recommendation or the usual path for treatment for fibroids for them? Great question. So um, I think I already mentioned them, but I can summarize. Uh, there are a couple of options that are not available if you are, are at least not recommended, they are available always, but not recommended if you hope to continue to grow your family. And one being uterine fibroid embolization, the other at this point in time being this um, uh, radiofrequency uh, ablation of the fibroid. Although, as I said, I'm, I myself am an author uh, in the paper that showed that it is safe. But from an FDA standpoint, at this point in time, it is not yet approved. Otherwise, the high-intensity focus ultrasound, if you're eligible for it and if you have access to it, uh, is uh, safe for subsequent pregnancy. 
myomectomy has always been advised and traditionally the treatment that has been used uh, for women who want to um, continue to have more children. In fact, uh, until recently, the argument is, have you finished your family, then remove the uterus, not a myomectomy. The reason for that is heavy bleeding with myomectomy can sometimes necessitate blood transfusions and uh, hysterectomies usually uh, in these patients less bloody and therefore you know the chances of requiring a blood transfusion is lower plus as i alluded to earlier once you have many fibroids it's not a question of when it's going to come back if it's going to come back it's when it's going to come back so therefore um the the uh, shall i dare say paternalistic attitude was you're done with your family take it out or okay you're 30 and you haven't had a baby yet well, we'll try to save your uterus. But that attitude has changed. And I've always maintained it, that your uterus is your uterus. And, and it's, it's an organ. Yes, it's out of sight. Even if you attain menopause, if you want to have the fibroids taken out and the uterus maintained, that is a choice that you make. And I should be able to honor that, that choice. For the vast majority of patients, it is safe to do the surgery. Any surgery is uh, potentially dangerous, of course. There are always risks associated with that. But anything in life is associated with this. So we have to always consider our values, traditions, and beliefs uh, as we tailor the treatment for the patient, for their needs. What do you tell your patients who ask if there's anything we can do to prevent or reduce our risk of uterine fibroids? So all I can tell them is no, nothing that you do, you did or going to do is either going to make them grow faster or prevent them from coming up again, unfortunately. Since we don't know what causes them, we do know that estrogen makes them grow but interestingly, contraceptive pill doesn't make them grow any faster. Because you see, you if you didn't have the contraceptive pill, your own estrogen will be secreted by your ovaries. So estrogen is going to be there regardless. Therefore, just adding contraceptive pill is not going to make it grow any faster. It modifies the lining and decreases the bleeding, but it's not going to make the fibroids go faster. Thank you so much, Dr. Bagbath. I really appreciate your time talking with us on the Women's Health Cast about fibroids today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jackie, for having me. On the next Women's Health Cast, we will learn more about what abortion access looks like in Wisconsin today and what an upcoming decision from the U.S. Supreme Court could mean for people seeking abortions in our state. We'll be speaking with Dr. Jenny Higgins, Director of the UW Collaborative for Reproductive Equity and Director of the UW-OBGYN Division of Reproductive and Population Health. The Women's HealthCast is a production of the UW-Madison Department of OBGYN. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can find the Women's HealthCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WISCOBGYN. Let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us in your podcast app and let us know what health issues you'd like to learn about at the link on our podcast page. Thanks for listening.